We are in Romans chapter 5, looking particularly at verses 1 through 11 this morning and drawing our attention on verses 1 and 2. Paul now, in this section, begins to turn his attention, and it changes from defending the gospel, defending the need of the gospel, defending the message of the gospel, to moving to the application of the gospel. From chapter 5 through chapter 8, we see the riches of the gospel working out in the lives of God's people. And chapter 5, verse 1 starts that change. As Paul will wrap up a few details about the work of the gospel and the benefits for us and the exaltation of Christ, he then moves into chapter 6, moves into sanctification and the areas in which the gospel is lived out in our life. This is a rich section of Scripture where we get to see the benefits, the joyful benefits of God's marvelous grace among us. Particularly here in chapter 5, there are two themes that move its way through this entire chapter. See the themes of Christ and the themes of the gospel. And it is, particularly Paul's focus here in verses 1 through 11, is to show, show us the joyful and rich benefits of God's grace lavished upon us. So that ultimately I would hope that as we leave this section, we would leave with hearts filled with praise, filled with joy when we think about the marvelous grace that God has given us in and through Jesus Christ. When we compare the gospel of God against any other gospel out there, there's no gospel that rivals God's grace towards us in Jesus Christ. This series may be less of a here's what you ought to do and more of here's why you ought to praise God. Why you ought to be lifting up the grace of God and be praising him. And Paul clarifies for us some details in this section Oftentimes, I think if the church suffers, it suffers from being too earthly-minded. It is too focused on what pleasures come in this world and what benefits are found now and not concerned about the things to come, the things above. They're not looking where God would direct our thoughts and attention. We have a gospel today that's more about personal suffering. Come to Jesus and he will take away your problems. Come to Jesus and he will remove your depression. Come to Jesus and he'll take away that suffering that you're facing. Come to Jesus and he will remove poverty from you. Come to Jesus and any injustice will be dealt with. Well, it might be true that turning to Christ will solve some of those things, but it might not be true. It might come, you might come to Christ and you go into greater poverty. You might come to Christ and you face greater suffering. You might come to Christ and you face greater injustices. So there is something about God's work that goes beyond the earthly. And it's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, that takes our mindset out of the earthly and moves it to the heavenly riches that feeds our hearts and souls, that encourages us. And it is sad as I look around at the church that there is a, uh, in this day and age of heightened discussion about the gospel, we have moved away from the glories and the riches that God has demonstrated. 
We have gospel coalitions and gospel hermeneutics and gospel-centered preaching and gospel lives. But it all looks earthly when it ought to look heavenly, when it ought to look to the riches of the grace that is found in Christ Jesus and not to see the marvelous grace. And I think that's where Paul takes us here in Romans 5. It's a joyful journey for us to be on. We were looking at this, just the themes and, and looking at the details that Paul has laid out here. Paul picks up here in chapter 5, verse 1, where he left off in Romans chapter 3, verses 24 and 25. Notice back in Romans 3, 24 and 25, it says this, We are being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. From that statement, Paul then moves in to defend the gospel, defends the works of the gospel against the law. He then goes and defends the Abraham being saved in the same way. He defends the Old Testament teaching that the Old Testament pointed to the same gospel of grace. And now in chapter 5, he goes back to justification, back to draw our attention to this grand theme that he had been highlighting, demonstrating again the marvelous kindness that God has given us. This gospel is like none other. No other religion has the message that God has given us, the message of Jesus Christ. No other faith matches this. There is a grace that is demonstrated in the gospel of God that we have been justified before God, declared righteous. Now, I just want to clarify, when we talk about justification, When we talk about the being justified here in chapter 5, verse 1, when we emphasize this, what are we talking about? And there are three components that we're talking about. When we're talking about being justified, it has at least these three components, and we could break it down more, but I'm just going to stick in these big categories. The first component is this. We are recognizing that God takes our sin That is our past sin, our present sin, our future sin. He takes our sin and credits it to the account of Jesus Christ. He puts on Jesus Christ's account our transgressions. So that Christ is credited or viewed as if he had done all of our evil deeds. Second aspect, justification, is that God takes Christ's righteousness, that is all that is his by being God, very God, and all that is his as being a man who lived under the law and obeyed the law, the righteousness of Christ, all of that righteousness is credited to our account. So that when God looks upon us, he looks upon us as if we had lived out his perfect life, that we were both Righteous by nature and righteous in practice because we are clothed in Christ. Christ covers us. Which leads to the third aspect of justification. Based upon our evil deeds credited to Christ and the wrath of God poured out upon Christ and the satisfaction of that 
wrath, as Christ was raised from the dead, God can turn and view us as righteous because Christ's righteousness is credited to our account. We are able to stand before God, righteous, innocent, upright, able to enter into the glorious presence of God. And then that is what Paul builds on here. Now that you've been justified, now and how did this come? It is, we are being justified, as verse 1 says, through faith or by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. We have believed upon God. We have believed his message. And we are reckoned as righteous. This is what Paul is going to build on in this text. We could, as we look our way through this text, we could spend time uh, marveling on the riches of Christ because Christ is all over in this chapter. You notice back in verse 1, it is, again, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, it is through whom we also have obtained our inheritance, that is, our, our introduction, that is, through Christ we received this introduction. Down in verse 6, it says, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, at the end of verse 8, Christ died for us. And in verse 9, it is, we have been justified by his blood, that is, the blood of Christ. And it is from Christ that we are, or through Christ, that we are saved from the wrath of God through him, verse 9 says. And in verse 10, through the death of his son, we shall, shall be saved by his life, into verse 11 We also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's the marvelous work of Christ as demonstrated in these first 11 verses. You could even, as we go on, he compares the two Adams, the first Adam we were in and the second Adam. So Christ is the central theme through this entire section. But even while he is the center theme, there is the grand larger purpose that Paul has in this book, and that is the defense and explanation of the gospel of God. This very theme that he started back in chapter 1 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, chapter 1 and verse 16, this gospel which he is defending and proclaiming, this gospel of God's justifying the sinner through Jesus Christ, this gospel is where he focused. This section, in verses 1 through 11, is modified by two phrases, two participial phrases. The one is first found in verse 1, where it's saying there, having been justified by faith. Literally being translated, being justified. Then in verse 9 is the other one, much more than having now been justified. These two phrases govern all the ideas that are unpacked here in verses 1 through 11. Paul keeps drawing our attention back to the gospel, the riches of God's work, the marvelous grace that has been lavished upon us in and through Jesus Christ. So that as we leave this section, we should leave it with greater hope, greater peace, and greater praise. 
fact, those are kind of three key words. If you wanted to uh, grasp the ideas that are found here, it is peace, hope, and praise. So what flows from this marvelous text. And this is in contrast to the audience that Paul has been writing to the Jews and their particular struggles of trying to be righteous before God by keeping the law. It's the gospel of God in contrast to the law. The law would demand you to keep it perfectly and live, break it in one place or one point and you die. Keep the law to avoid the penalty. The gospel of God, we are saved by grace and through faith, and it delivers us from the wrath of God to come. Set free from the penalty to live for God. These, this is what's in contrast as Paul has been working his way through the first five, chap, five chapters of Romans. So here, just our focus and what our focus for this series is going to be this. Paul is going to unfold for us the benefits of the doctrine of justification. The benefits for us. And he gives us three benefits. The first benefit is this. Justification grants to the believer a life-transforming peace with God through Jesus Christ. The first rich Marvelous grace given to us. So we have a transforming peace with God through Jesus Christ. We'll see that in verses 1 and 2 this morning. And then as we continue in the series, we'll see verses 3 through 8, the next one. Justification energizes the believer's worship in practice and in principle. The doctrine of justification energizes our worship, both in the praise of God and in the doctrine of and what we understand about God and what he does. So we see that in verses 3 through 8. And then in verses 9 through 11, the third benefit, justification anchors the believer's hope of salvation in the gift of reconciliation with God. It reminds us of our reconciliation. That's where Paul is going to take us in this journey together. So this morning, let's look at this first principle. It's found here in verses 1 and 2. Justification grants to the believer a life-transforming peace with God through Jesus Christ. Maybe if I set this up for us so we better understand. To understand how, how all other religions work, particularly the Jewish faith here, the Jews had believed that they would keep the law and in keeping the law, they would be right before God. The problem is, whenever they fail, or as other religions trying to appease a deity, trying to operate in such a way as to make that deity happy with them. They're constantly living under the fear of having to face that deity and face judgment. In contrast to that, Paul says, here we are having been justified by faith. Verse 1 and 2 is one long sentence in the Greek, but so many ideas come out in this text. We have justification by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the media, mediation role of Christ 
Uh, in verse 2, we also have the anticipation of eschatological realities of God coming. So there are so many themes that come out in verse 1 and 2. But the whole emphasis here, again, is on the riches of God's work for us. This modifying phrase, then, being justified, Paul is going to unpack it. And one of the first benefits that Paul unpacks here is that we have peace with God. Now, the question is, is who is the we? You think, well, it's obvious. It's believers. But it's not obvious in every case. Sometimes when Paul's referring to the we, like he does in chapter 2, he's referring to we, the gospel ministers. Later in chapter 7, he refers to we, those Jews. And even in chapters 9 through 11, he's referring to his own brothers as Jewish brothers. Here, it is true that he is referring to believers. We can see that from the context. Notice back in verse 24, or verse 23 through 24 of chapter 4, he draws this out. It says, Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, notice, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Who are the we? It's those who have faith. Those who believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We are the ones, into chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 2, through whom we have obtained our introduction, notice, by faith. Those who have faith, that's the we here, these are the ones that Paul is writing to. He's writing to believers. Those who have operated in the same kind of faith as Abraham, those who have believed God's message, those who have responded to God's message in faith. Those who are walking after the commands of God, they've heard God's commands and they have responded to that in faith and now they are following the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the we in this text. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. This is the main idea for this text. We have peace with God. This peace, again, for some is a, um, a false peace, simply thinking, well, God's not around, he doesn't exist. So they walk around in a false peace, a kind of amnesia that there is no danger around. But that's not what the Bible describes a man's natural condition. Bible has described man's natural condition as being in a position of rebelling against him, a hostility towards God. That's what Paul has been laying out. If you turn back to chapter 1, Paul has been laying this out, this case, up to this point. When he said in verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Then he launches from verse 18 on to defend this gospel. What does he say? What does he start off in verse 18? He starts off with this theme. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. His argument is this. There is hostility. Man, natural man, is hostile to God, and God is hostile towards the wicked. There is hostility. 
great hostility. God's wrath, as verse 18 indicates, is revealed from heaven. It is made known. It is against those who are suppressing the truth. And then that's where Paul launches into his argument. He shows God's present judgment and anticipating the future judgment. The present judgment is God turning man over to his own evil devices so that man goes into evil and goes further and further into corruption, even giving up and corrupting what is natural and good. Man is hostile. He's in open rebellion. And the Jews had thought, well, we escaped that. But then into chapter 2, Paul exposes their evil deeds. Chapter 2, he shows that even those who had the law, even those who wanted to do right, was living in rebellion to God. He says that back in verse 21 through 24, when he calls them out there in chapter 2, saying, you teach the law and yet you disobey it. You uh, preach that you shall not steal, but you steal. Uh, You who say you shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You, all the things you teach against, you are doing, he says. So that verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Saying that there is a, a hostility even among God's people against the things of God. Which moves into chapter 3, he demonstrates from verses 9 through 18, the universal condemnation of man, none righteous, not even one, who seeks, none who seeks after God. Man is in hostility against God rebelling against his ways. On top of that, God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. God's wrath is being kindled. In fact, here in Romans 5 and verse 9, notice he brings out this theme, much more than having now been justified by his blood. Notice, we shall be saved. Notice, from the wrath of God through him. It's this wrath, this judgment, this coming condemnation upon evil that the believer doesn't fear. That's what Romans 5.1 indicates. We have peace with God. The hostility has been removed. The natural hostility that man has towards the things of God has been removed so that we no longer hate righteousness, we love it. We no longer oppose, un, uh, oppose holiness, but we love holiness. That hostility has been removed. On top of that, God's wrath has been removed. He's no longer pouring out his wrath, will not pour out his wrath upon us. We who are in Jesus Christ, we who are covered, we have peace with God. Again, think about how this would work out. If you believe that there is a holy God, that he is righteous in all of his dealings, that he has done no that he would not look upon evil with favor, if you believe that God is again perfectly righteous and is a, a perfect judge who will bring all into account and you were trying to appease that God by keeping a standard, keeping a law, you're going to constantly live under the frustration that you never measure up. You're not going to view God as one who you can enter before. You're going to view him as an impossible judge, one who is unable to be satisfied. 
This would be the Jewish condition, living under the law, where the law would constantly uphold the standard, constantly tell you what you ought to do, constantly point you to the perfect standard of righteousness. And the more you strove to try to keep the law, the more you would realize, I can't keep it. I can't satisfy it. And what's the result of not being able to keep the law, not being able to satisfy God's righteous demands? The result is anger, fury, judgment, hopelessness. And Paul says we don't live under that hopelessness. We live, as this state says, we have peace with God. More than absence of hostility. He's not just simply saying here there is no longer the threat of any hostility. There's more than that. We have a warm relationship with God. We have shalom. We have the ability to enter into the presence of God and behold him as a friend, as a father, in a personal relationship. I mean, there is one sense you could say, if you look at the, all the activities that are heading out in our world right now and just look at the conflict in Ukraine, you could say it's, you could have peace just by an accord that would stop the firing of missiles and the, you know, the advancing of armies. But greater peace would be that you would have reconciliation and fellowship and the parties engaging together and they befriended one another. And this is exactly what Paul is referencing to here. We have this peace with God. And it's demonstrated in the three supporting points that Paul makes here to build up this idea. He gives three ideas to expand on this. To say This is not just peace with God. It is a reconciled peace that brings harmony between the sinner and a righteous God. We have peace, and notice the first part. It is through the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Everything that is done, everything that is given to us, everything that we have is through the perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings this peace. It isn't earned on our part. It isn't accomplished by our efforts. It isn't done by something that we have done. It is accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings this peace. He brings for us what we cannot bring to ourselves or gain ourselves. When I think about our our own efforts again here, there's nothing we can do to appease the wrath of God. We can't satisfy one sin, let alone a lifetime of sins, right? But this is what we need more than anything. We need peace with this God. A God who has no evil in him. A God who is perfectly holy and righteous. A God who has perfect knowledge of everything. Who knows our thoughts and deeds and actions. A God who is in his perfect holiness and righteousness and in his knowledge has the power to bring judgment upon all who have transgressed. And none can thwart his will. None could oppose him. None can hide from him. It's this God that we must be reconciled to. And as Paul says here, this is accomplished through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus. 
The only way, again, the sinner is able to stand before God is through the perfect mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul builds on it. So not only do we have this peace with God through Jesus Christ, but verse 2 says, It is through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And this phrase, it uh, seems a bit clunky, but what Paul is beginning to focus our attention on here is the riches of this personal communion we have with God through Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we have obtained our introduction. The word introduction there is translated as, in some of your translations, as access. And it's the entry point. The emphasis here is that Jesus is our entry, the way in which we get in. This word is only used three times in the New Testament. The two other times is found in Ephesians. It's found in Ephesians 2 and verse 18. It says, through him we have our access in one spirit to the Father. And in Ephesians 3.12, it says that we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. That is, this is the entry point. This is the way in. The idea here is that Jesus Christ alone is the only entrance into this place. Special access. I was thinking about it. It kind of was illustrated to me recently, the privileged access. If you tried to get around the White House, you wouldn't get very far unless somebody granted you and led you around. But I also saw this recently last year when I, when my youngest son wanted to go on a trip, and he, his desire was to take a flight. So we were going to fly from up north down here to Florida, fly back at the end of a road trip. And as we went to fly back, it was supposed to be one takeoff, one landing, a short two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour trip. Well, we got to the airport, and it turned to be a nine-hour trip with multiple stops, four stops. So we got multiple takeoffs and landings. And in the multiple takeoff and landings, we stayed on the same plane the whole time. So we saw the same crew, the same pilots through the whole journey. By the second time of being on the plane, they recognized we were going to be with them for a while. So they befriended us and found out my son was flying for the first time and invited us to the pilot's cockpit there to see where he sat and to see all the instruments and to take pictures. And it was that special access that was recognized that you couldn't just walk up and knock on the door and get in, especially in this day and age with security. And for my son, of course, that was the great experience this privileged access, this opportunity. That is what the description of the Christian life is, that we have this special introduction, this privileged access by faith, notice, into this grace in which we stand. This ability to stand before God in peace, the ability to be able to stand before Almighty God with no fear, no trembling, no uh, shrinking away. We're standing in boldness before Him is a grace given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way that this is accomplished. 
It's not earned in perfect obedience. It's not earned in uh, a number of times going to church per week. It's not earned in the amount of prayer time you've had. It's not earned in the number of devotions you've worked through or the number of verses you've translated from the Greek to the English. It doesn't even matter how many sermons you've preached. It's not granted by your abilities. It's granted through the Lord Jesus Christ who has given us this access. And I love this phrase, in which we stand. God grants it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not earned. It is the expression of his grace given to us. So that we cooperate in the gospel of grace that makes us able to stand before God. This leads us to the third idea that Paul adds. And he says, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Not only are we standing before God in peace, and we're standing there through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're able to gain this special and privileged access through Jesus Christ, but we stand in anticipation of the glory of God, and we give praise. This is a description of a believer A believer is standing presently today anticipating and waiting for the revealing of the glory of God. Notice that phrase there at the end of verse 2. We are in exaltation in hope. We exalt in hope. Literally, we boast in hope of the glory of God. We are waiting for something to come. Not like the English word hope, like a hope so. We're waiting in an assured anticipation of what is to come. This is in the Lord Jesus Christ we stand. Now, again, this is, for any other religion, this is a bizarre statement. Are you crazy? You want the God of glory, the God who is holy, the God who is righteous, the God who cannot look upon evil to come and stand before you, and you invite that? You want him, the God who has all knowledge, all power, all authority, to stand before you and bring his righteous judgments, and you want to be in the front row? You want to see it? You got to be out of your mind. The one who knows your thoughts from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you go to bed. He knows the motives and desires. He knows everything you're tempted by and everything you do. He knows everything you've read online. He knows everything you watch on TV. He knows everything you've looked at on your phone. You want him to stand before you at this very moment? I'd say outside of Christ, no way. In Christ, yes. In Jesus Christ, absolutely Because it's in Jesus Christ that not only do I want that event, I hope for it. I'm hoping for this day to come. Anticipating it. Why? Well, this phrase, again, the glory of God. If it was just focused on the glory of God, we could talk about his righteousness. We could talk about his uh, justice. We could talk anything about what makes up God and makes him unique from the rest of his creation. We can look at his attributes and all those things. But there is something particularly in this phrase, the hope of the glory of God is something eschatological. 
something that is yet to come. Time in which, as again, Romans 1.18 indicates to us, that time in which the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness, this time in which it is going to come. There is a time in which God will come and bring an end to sin. He will bring an end to the rebellion. He will bring an end to Satan's rule. He will bring an end to injustice. He will exalt his son and he will exalt his character and his righteousness and he will free up creation from its judgment and he will free us from this body of death. We anticipate this. And in fact, this word exalt, which he's then going to go on and say in verse 3 as well and build on it, but here this exalt can be translated as boasting We boast in the hope of the glory of God. Every other place that Paul has used this term boasting, it has been put off and rejected. Four times, in fact, in Romans, he's talking about rejecting boasting. Chapter 2, verse 23, you who boast in the law through your breaking of the law. Or uh, chapter 3, verse 27, where then is boasting? Chapter 4 and verse 2, Abraham uh, couldn't boast in anything. Romans eleven eighteen. Uh, we shouldn't boast over Israel. Every other place, Paul says, we should put off boasting. Here he says, now we boast, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. We stand in this proper place of boasting. We boast in God, in his work. This glory. In fact, glory is going to be a big theme of Paul's. Turn over to chapter 8. Let me show you. I could show this to you because we'll all forget it by the time we get here. So let's anticipate when we finally get to this section. But notice Romans 8 and verse 17, what Paul says there. Well, starting verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, and heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that, notice, we may also be glorified with him. The Christian lives in this state of anticipating the glory to be revealed, and particularly what is going to happen with us, we also will be glorified with him. Jump down to verse 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared, notice, with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Something is to come that is going to manifest the great glory of God. It is going to be revealed and we live in anticipation of it. Verse 21, For the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation is going to be set free, no longer under the curse. It is now going to be able to operate freely with the glory of the children of God. Jump down to verse 30. This marvelous work of God's grace and see this chain of redemption. Whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. Christian lives in a state anticipating the rich glory of God that is to be unfolded. 
Come back to chapter 5, then. Here's how the Christian stands, then. We stand in peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord who has granted to us this special access to be able to stand in the grace of God. And this grace we stand expectantly. We stand even waiting for God's glory to be manifest. So that we're not shrinking away at those times. We're standing boldly. We're standing confidently. We're standing in this Awareness that as God's glory is being manifest, we're not fearful, but we're able to approach into the very presence of God with hope. This is how the believer lives. We live with this realization that God is not our enemy, but our Father. We live with peace. And even as we navigate through life and we find the ups and downs of our spiritual journey, it never changes our personal relationship with God. We're not moving in and out of peace with God. We are, through Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. It is settled, certain. Experientially, we may be riding the roller coaster of ups and downs in our pursuit of sanctification, but in our position in Christ, We have peace with God, anticipating this coming return when the glory of God will be revealed. So I ask you, Christian, what is your faith and the character of your faith? Do you constantly view God as one that has to be appeased and one who has to be placated and one who you're trying to earn his favor Or do you recognize that that favor has been found in and through Jesus Christ alone? That your boldness and your confidence before God is found through Jesus Christ. So that when sin is revealed within you, when you fall short and you know that you have transgressed, do you find yourself saying, all right, I got to make up for that? Or do you find yourself turning to Christ and casting yourself upon him? Confessing, believing upon him. The only thing that makes us stand before God, that gives us the grace to stand, is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that work that produces within us then this hope, this exalting in hope of God's coming glory. That's the second thing I would want you to evaluate your Christian life by Do you live in praise and adoration of the coming glory of God? Do you have that peace? You should have that peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we're not as perfect as we want to be, but we strive to be who we ought to be in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are living and reminding ourselves every day that we don't stand in our own perfections, we stand in His perfections. And we are anticipating that time in which God is going to be revealed. And so we seek to live like him and live for him now so that we will enjoy the benefits now of what we're going to have for all of eternity. Peace with God. Well, that's the first joyful benefit of God's justifying work. We are given peace with God through Jesus Christ. 
When we come back next week, we'll look at the verses 3 through 8 and see the way in which that influences our worship. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this marvelous work. Because we are prone to take what you've started and complete it with our own efforts. We are tempted to try to motivate ourselves with fear rather than love and faith. We are tempted to fix our eyes on earthly things rather than heavenly things. We are vulnerable to areas of unbelief in our own hearts and not trusting your word. And so it's in the midst of these times that we need to take our heart back to the gospel and remind us of your marvelous work and your grace lavished upon us so that we're not trusting in our own might or our own wisdom, but trusting in the work of our Lord. Indeed, we would pray for a greater love and appreciation for him a greater desire to be like him in all things, a greater confidence in the grace that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, a greater anticipation for the riches to come so that we would be motivated to put off earthly things because we already anticipate the rich blessings to be poured out upon us for all of eternity. So strengthen our faith as we strive to walk consistently according to this gospel which we have believed and fill us as, with this exaltation and praise so that we're not quickly shaken and we're not distressed by difficulties around us and we're not put off by the pressures of life but we're only strengthened all the more to be those who are gospel-centered, who love the Lord Jesus Christ above all else who live in anticipated glory. Until that time, may we encourage one another and strengthen one another and remind one another of these things so that we would never be tempted to, to complete our salvation by our own works, but always be dependent on your marvelous grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.